0: one thing we've been really lucky with is that even with like hundreds of thousands of users we have like you know a thousand users in our core group who are the most vocal set of users in any consumer product i've ever seen in any business that i've ever worked in or founded or been a part of they tell us when we're wrong they tell us when we're right but they also tell us what direction they feel like might be right for the business so we have this never-ending string of conversations that we have with our users and our product team is always in the conversation with new and existing users doing new interviews about features about things that we should be doing
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, a weekly podcast where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. If you enjoyed this conversation, I encourage you to share it and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows so more people can learn from it. In this episode, I sit down with a very genuine Rob Petrozzo. Co-founder and chief product officer of Rally, an alternative investing platform for blue-chip and digital collectibles, including classic cars, sports memorabilia, watches, NFTs, and more, totaling over 400 assets in over 19 different categories. Founded back in 2016, Rally has grown to over half a million users and actively finds, manages, and fractionalizes some of the most important collectibles and museum-grade items in the world, including vintage wine and dinosaur fossils. And, although I recorded the interview from Raleigh's offices, no, unfortunately I could not taste some of those topped-up wines. They're backed by Alexis Ohanian, Anthemist, Porsche Ventures, Social Leverage, Upfront, and many more. In this episode, we discuss the fascinating world of collectibles. How does Rally find and secure some of the most incredible items in the world? Power of community and how Rally actively incorporates client feedback into product design and company strategy. The intersection between collectibles and digital assets like NFTs, founder mistakes from the early days of Rally, and a lot more. Hope you enjoyed this great, great conversation with Rob Petrozzo from Raleigh. So Rob, what, what's going on? We're, we're here at Raleigh's office right in the middle of Soho. By the way, congrats. Beautiful
0: office. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you came by because you're actually, it's funny you say that because we ran into each other on the street like a couple blocks away. It was the day we moved in. I was with, uh, I was with Diana, our head of people. And we're just walking the street, grabbing coffee. And she was like, is that Miguel? Like she, she, (laughs) (laughs) she saw you from a distance and only knew you from like LinkedIn and from listening to the podcast. And I was like, oh man, I haven't seen him in so long. We connected and I realized that the whole world, especially when it's VC, when it's product startup, so much of it has found its way to Soho. So for us, we had our small space on Lafayette Street, we moved to a a way bigger office and and now a museum space that we're building out here on Broadway between uh, Grand and Howard. But this is a place where, like, you know, everything changes every day. There's always a lot of activities, a lot going on. So it wound up bringing so many people back to the office, too, who are in the tri-state area. But have been working from home or have been kind of, you know, as remote as possible. And now getting everybody back in the same room in this new kind of beautiful space, building out the museum. It's like a new energy that comes to the company. And it's good to see the neighborhood so active, too.
1: It is. Even on a cold day like today, there's a lot of people out there. Tell me a bit about this museum that you're building. Is 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 it the vision, is it that as a customer, as a user of Rally, I can own you know, a piece of your collectibles, but also that can be displayed downstairs in, in the museum for everyone to see?
0: Yeah, for sure. And that's like for anyone who doesn't know, like we we really created this world where it kind of feels like a stock market, but it's this marketplace for buying and selling equity shares and collectibles. But we've always looked at it and I've always looked at it like the tangible and the tactile piece of a collectible of anything that has a story behind it. All these, you know, amazing pieces that have this heartbeat, it's not a stock. So if it's like, you know, a dinosaur fossil or you know, one of the rarest, you know, baseball rookie cards of all time, or it's, you know, the Declaration of Independence and these crazy historical documents that we have, it's great to tell that story. They have crazy stories behind them. Seeing it and feeling it and really being a part of it and having being able to experience it firsthand is a whole different feeling. When we first started the business in 2016, it was uh, Classic Cars is where we started. And that was part of the name Rally Road. It was like the idea that it's like, there's cars and it's Rally and it's all these things came together. That was a little bit of our moat. We didn't want people to know we were going into other verticals or asset classes. So we kept that name like as close as possible. But the question we would get when no one knew who we were and the idea of fractional investing was brand new, no one knew what that was, was like, all right, I put money into this car but I can't drive it, It's, it's purely commoditized. And that, to us, was a hard explanation early on that these are the museum quality collectibles and that they're, as much as they're meant to be driven, those cars, also, we want to make sure that the best examples live on in the future. But the other side of that was that, you know, it's easy to understand a tangible investment or a collectible like that when you see it in person. So for us, the museum space is a mix. It's like a community space where we're going to have like, you know, a content studio and a podcast studio and a place to hang out and have meetings and have conversations but also it's going to be like a timeline of everything that's on the, the app. So when you walk in, there's going to be like the dinosaur fossils and the baseball cards from the 18 and 1900s. As you get further in, you get some of the stuff from the 90s. You get like a bunch of the first edition literature. You walk your way into the kind of into the future. And in the back, it's like big screens and it's a bunch of NFTs and all the things that we feel like might be the collectibles of the future. So we want to make that experience and we want to do it in a way where it could be for adults, it could be for kids, it could be for anything in between. And where we are in Soho, and that's going to open probably in, in March realistically but where we are the part of Soho that we're in is where like we have the Museum of Ice Cream is one block up and like you know the slime factories across the street and you see these crazy lines down the block all day of like parents and their kids and they leave so excited and they're like spending money all day but they really they're leaving with like you know a little cup of ice cream or they're leaving with like a little thing of slime that they made here the idea is that you could leave with equity you could see this crazy thing and leave owning it and we're trying to make it where it's really the only museum where you can own everything inside. And that was really the plan from Jump. And this is like the big expansion of what, of what that vision always was.
1: I was just going to ask. So this, actually this weekend, I went to the Met. So some amazing uh, old pieces of, uh, you know, of history in the museum. But I think the the vast majority, if not all of them, they're owned by the Met. Maybe there's an art collector that lends them to them for, for a bit. But do you envision other museums or companies follow? Have you been getting maybe some some interest from from more established institutions
0: yeah i mean when we whenever we have great relationships all over the you know in new york in particular where it's it's museum central but it's also the world where finance rules too especially downtown this is like everybody in new york below canal street i think that works in like anything finance or finance adjacent has always seen this kind of zero-sum game where it's like make as much money as possible as quickly as possible but so much that is just really moving, you know, numbers from one Excel sheet to the other. There's fancy ways to do it, but that's what finance has been to this point. I think what we saw during COVID was interesting. The idea of like a museum selling assets or selling paintings, as an example, is is super faux pas. And it's this thing that, you know, it, it commoditizing public works is, has always been this hot-button issue for museums in particular. During COVID, a lot of them needed money. So the conversation started coming back up, like, are we going to sell pieces of the collection and, like, s- do sponsorships in the museum and these things that are just, like, the end of the world for the, what you consider the purest and the real collectors. But for us, it's a, it's not – we've never looked at it as, like, commodity first. We've always looked at it as this world where if there's something that we have that belongs in the American Museum of Natural History, or something that we have that we feel belongs in the Met, or something that should go, that's from like, you know, one of the Dutch masters and belongs in the Frick Collection. We want to sort of put this on display with that. For us, it's A, able to sort of show people exactly what these things are and see something they've never seen before, but also it does bring the attention back to us. We're not looking at it to commoditize it where it's just a ticker symbol, because these things do... You know, they, they march to the beat of their own drum. They have this crazy story. They get retold over and over again. They have these living pieces. It's not just something that's tucked away in a freeport or tucked away in storage somewhere. We feel like the people that care most about these assets are the ones that should have access to it. If you're somebody who knows everything about, you know, a 1955 Porsche Speedster, but the chance to get one is so out of reach, $500,000 car, but it's in the museum at Rally getting a piece of that should be a, it, it should be something you can leave with a little bit of equity ownership. If that means working with you know a Peterson Museum in California or with like you know the car show here in New York and having it be on display and be traveling with some sort of museum ownership or you know being in other places outside of even our museum, that's something that we're always looking for and something we'll do more of in 2023 as well.
1: Where where are the profit bulls in the collectible space?
0: You know, I I, I don't know much. I I've, I've yeah. never been a
1: big of a big collector, but I know there's you know, there's shows. There's big TV shows you've been yeah.
0: on. <laughs> you've been yeah. on a couple of those. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, everything, <laughs> it's, it's, collectibles are weird because similar to art, I think everybody early on makes mistakes and I did too. And it's you buy what you love or you buy what you like or you buy what looks good or you buy what a friend told you about. Inevitably, you don't think about it as like money. You don't think about it as like, I'm gonna make a million dollars off this. There are certain things, I think when I was a kid that my friends and I would like put money together and buy like a pack of baseball cards and split it. And if you got like a Michael Jordan card, you saved it. You knew it was something important, but you didn't know why. I think what we've seen is that there's a the information asymmetry doesn't exist the way it used to. I think that what we see is that there's a way to find out every single thing, all the nuance about anything you like and turn it into something that you love. And that's what's changed, I think, in the last 10 years with collectibles, that you have people who thought in their head like, you know, I only have $1,000. I can't get the best. uh, I can't get a Warhol for $1,000, you know, but I could start with like a, a print and I could buy the right print. And one that, in theory, is worth more than the other print that's priced the same because this one's a shorter run or this one came directly from the, the Warhol Museum or this one was this. I think that is what changed dramatically. At the top end, the museum quality stuff, the one of ones, the you know things that are graded 9.8 out of 10 when you think about cards and video games and comic books, things that have certain provenance now have become really important. If it comes from a very specific collection, we've seen that with comics, we've seen that with art. All that type of stuff is easily accessible information. I think people are starting to see real gains because it's not just the thing that beats inflation or the thing that's beat the S&P or like the, you know, the context that I think a lot of investors put it in. A lot of it is emotion. And we've been told for so long emotion should not be a part of investing. What's happened is that we've seen emotion here, especially on Rally, leads to big returns for certain people. And this is never investment advice. There's no guarantees. But, you know, if your heart leads you to something, you do the research and figure out why it's important, then there's definitely money to be made in this space and there's definitely money to be made on collectibles, especially now where, you know, we're in this crazy volatile market, but these are still hard assets a lot of the times. And people look at them from an investment standpoint as hard assets, so.
1: So you started pre-pandemic, then during the pandemic, that was a big inflection point for uh, Raleigh, I've, I've, we've spoken about this in the past and also I've heard you comment about how behavior shifted. But now we're, let's call it post-pandemic, right?
0: Um, what has changed? Right. Yeah, I think that a, a bunch of, I, everything has changed. <laughs> but I think that what we saw early on and, and you've seen this too because it's a venture thing too. When we started, we had a lot of really smart people around us. Every door closed, like we couldn't raise any money because we were trying to explain too many things. We were trying to say that collectibles would be a part of every every portfolio at a certain point and that it would be an asset class. We were trying to explain that we can build education and content so that people knew what this stuff was before it went live. You know, we were trying to explain that this would be a financial marketplace and there was money to be made the same way that a lot of the, the legacy platforms had made money but it was too much. It was, over, it was an overwhelming amount of stuff. So we talked with I think Greg Bettinelli was from, from, uh, who was formerly at Upfront, um, Upfront Ventures who led our A round was one of the first people that said it and uh, he recognized, I think, and a lot of people semi-early on recognize this, but no one really gave us money upfront. did, where you're building something that's not just, it's kind of building an industry. It's not just building, you know, this app or this product that's that's embedded finance or layered on top of an existing platform. So you got to build the whole marketplace. And that's the decision that we made early that we stuck with that thank God hasn't changed too dramatically, even though the consumer has. It's building for the moment versus building for the future. And we knew that we had to build something that people began to trust and understand and recognize. And Coinbase and Robin and a few others were around and they were starting to get real traction in 2015, 2016. But alternative assets weren't yet. That wasn't a thing. So Greg, I talked to him during the pandemic, and you know, everything was really choppy. Everything was really volatile. Everyone was super nervous. We were in the position we had we were we had planned to raise money that March before the pandemic, and now it's like Damn! Now we got to raise money in this crazy environment. The market hadn't turned and swung back up yet, and I was talking to him, and he was like, "You know, there's a chance that you're building something right now that uh, will wind up being huge in ten years, and you'll never get credit for. it. No, 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 you existed or rally existed." He's like, "So now's the time to think about what you want to be doing two years from now or three years from now with this business." And that was when we started thinking like, a it was asset class expansion. It was putting our foot on the gas so that when things started to swing upwards that we were behind it and we were with it. And we were sort of getting ahead of that curve to make sure that the best assets were on the platform. It was actively searching for exits for a lot of these assets where there was like huge returns on paper at that point, but they hadn't exited yet and people weren't really selling. They were holding on to their shares. So we really kind of put our foot on the gas all throughout COVID. And when we came out of it, I think what we saw is that now a lot of users who came in driven by emotion, they bought a bunch of stuff. Maybe they made some mistakes along the way. I know I did in a lot of investments, a lot of a lot of bets that I made during covid and now they're rethinking it a little bit where they don't want to leave any of these spaces, but they're a little more defensive. They want to do what I was saying before, where even the regular everyday investor who comes off the street and finds rally and makes their first investment in something they recognize, they're thinking like, what does museum quality mean? What is something that's going to be here five or 10 years from now? Their logic and the way that they invest has changed from like the easy money. Everybody knows the easy money's already been made and we're starting to see people way younger than me, where I never would have done this, who plan for the future actively. And they're really thinking in that like that VC window. They're thinking like three to five years. They're not thinking about like next week anymore. And that's something that we had to adapt adapt to and we had to adjust to as well, which I think we we started doing a really good job of where it's finding stuff. Instead of just throwing out, you know, doing doing the times of doing like five IPOs a week on rally, they're behind us for right now because the supply isn't the same. The investor's not the same. We believe in every single thing that's on this platform we always have. But now it's a matter of like making sure that if if our users are in defense mode and if they're looking for something very specific, that we're finding that very specific offering and that's the one that we take to market. So we're we're being as selective as they are right now. All right. So let's talk about that process, finding. I, I don't think
1: most people know how that works. I certainly do not. Tell us, maybe pick one very, very unique item that you have and tell us what was the process of finding it? Maybe you had to compete against other buyers. Yeah. How would you bring it on the platform? You know, it's it's an obscure world that people don't know about.
0: Yeah, so I'll give you I'll, I'll give you one of the first and the most important assets on Rally, which is uh, this T two hundred six Honus Wagner card. So this is like the most the most. It's from a collector standpoint, whether it's baseball cards or any other sports memorabilia or really anything, it's like a holy grail type of item. So Honus Wagner was this player. He played during Babe Ruth's time in the early 1900s. One of the best players in baseball. Most people don't know his name, but he had a card that uh, at that point, baseball cards came with cigarette packs. And uh, he, there's a little bit of conflict around what his real motivations were because he was a really shrewd negotiator too. His contract was messed up and he didn't want kids smoking. So after they printed the first like hundred, he said, stop the presses, stop making them. So it's the only car from this super legendary set that has Ty Cobb and a bunch of big names in it. That got pulled from production. There's probably 50 or 60 in circulation. It's never been sold. Any individual card for less than it was purchased for, and that's in 120 years of history. So for us, like we knew that everybody knew what that card was. The one that we have has a crazy story where it saved a, a, a it saved like a um, a set of nuns from bankruptcy. It's just the wildest story. But we needed one. We knew we needed one to launch into like other sports verticals. So for us, we had a couple of options because they never come to market. One was just like scour the globe and try to figure out if we can find one ourselves. The second was start thinking about like the partners that we had around us. So smart people who are in the spaces that we can, we can leverage relationship, but also like they're the ones who can, who want to work with us already. We had this new platform. Uh, we were, you know, we were actively in the market trying to find new assets. So we kind of put the word out to like three or four of our partners with serious domain expertise. A lot of them are advisors to the company. Some were equity owners and said, we need this piece. We also knew that there's only so many owners. This particular owner, he had made some money on paper. The card at that point was worth around $500,000, but he didn't want to sell. And that's been a, a big advantage for us, that we can securitize a portion of an asset. So we wound up taking half of that card, basically, and putting it on Rally. He maintained the other half in equity. Uh, we did that through an intermediary who owns an auction house, who's someone who's close to the platform and had had advisory shares in the platform. And uh, we got that deal done in a way where, A, this person got to keep equity. Uh, And ride the upside with investors. And now it's worth $1.8 million. So he made the right decision. He doesn't have to sell the whole thing. He doesn't have to to pay the 25% premium to go to an auction house. But also he knows it's going to people that care. I think that's been a big, a big method of acquiring assets for us now is that it 's not just a monetary transaction it 's something where now you 're still a part of it there 's a whole community of people just like you who really care about this actively, so that 's like always been part of the process for us where it worked for that card. Now, for everything else that we have because now it 's you know almost five hundred assets it 's a mix. If we can buy opportunistically, we have in the past. If we could do something where there 's retained equity we 'll do that if it 's something full consignment and that 's what the, the seller wants, we could do that. But we have a huge network now outside of just the underwriting standards, everything that our data team does here. We set up something where we know A, something is valuable and it's kind of worth the purchase price. B, it either has a history of returns or there's a or there's and it we feel like there's there's a potential for returns in the future. And then C, it's relevant now, but will be relevant in the future. So there's a, you know, we get thousands of assets that now come inbound nonstop. We have a team that runs through the process really quickly here. If it's something we want, we'll make an offer in one of those either retained equity, full consignment, or purchase. And if it meets everything, we'll put it on the platform, and that's then it goes through the SEC, it gets qualified. We have a really good relationship where that gets done pretty quickly. Then it becomes an IPO on Rally. So there's a few different models to work with, but we always lean on expertise and we, we lean on on data where we can, and then make sure that you know a seller knows that when you come to Rally, you're finding a bunch of people who look and feel a lot like you a lot of the time, and the community gets to, to own it with you.
1: So that's a, an item that you know comes from the past. Uh, sounds sounds super exciting, actually. But let's talk about the future, right? Yep. You, you've gotten uh, very deep into NFTs, right? Um, and, and just the whole digital asset world. Um, where's the intersection between collectibles and digital assets?
0: I think there's a, there's a few. I think that when any new technology pops up, and especially when it pops up in this crazy wave of, of new money, and everybody's making money, and it's just like the wild swing, I think it's something that everybody kind of gets caught up in quickly. And I think that we saw that, we saw that moment. It happened with crypto. It happened with NFTs. When your mom starts texting you, like, what is this thing? You know, it's at a, it's at an inflection <laughs> point that it's either going to become like ubiquitous enough that everybody on earth needs it or it's, it might be at its peak. And I think that when I got that text from my mom, it was one of those things where it's like, all right, there might be a little bit of a retreat coming at this point. And I love my mom. She knows everything that's going on in, in my life and in this space. But at the same time, I think that everybody was jumping into NFTs without knowing exactly what it was, and they were thinking about it as PFP projects, as like an image, a JPEG, something that you own. I think there's two worlds. One is that NFTs and the blockchain in general they make things way more uh, from in terms of building. It's it's way more economical. You can do it way more lean. It doesn't le- you don't need to leverage a huge um, like a huge engineering team or AWS for distribution or crazy new CMSs. It's set up in a way where it's immutable. It's something that, you know, has complete transparency. It's also quick and cheap to spin a project up. And that could be something like, you know, rally on the blockchain. Could be like all these assets could be, you know, tangible assets backed by NFTs or backed by the digital. and You just trade the digital, burn the digital, get the physical. That's something that could easily be done. I think a lot of people are doing it. But there's no real regulatory opinion around it yet. And that's why for us, like working with the SEC and doing this as qualified offerings where they are securities and there's no question about what they are, has always been a really important part of how we do business. The future might be a little bit different, but for right now and for the foreseeable future, we know that that's where our safety net is between us and our relationship with our investors and our, and our consumers. The other side of it is that, you know, I do believe in digital collectibles. I believe that if you if you believe that, you know, the future has a mix of physical and digital, and that new businesses are sprung up, you know, purely digital distributed teams on blockchain, it's hard to not then think that art and some of these digital pieces are going to be as collectible as sports cards. Because, you know, we don't look at, at a at a baseball card right now with some of these million dollar cards and say, you know, that's a, a piece of cardboard with someone's face on it. It's just, it's called a collectible. It's called, a, it's called like, you know, a card. It's called a rookie card. The same way we call things NFTs right now. But we're not calling them like, you know, an image represented by an erc721 token on this chain or like we don't we don't talk like that i think in the future it's going to just be collectibles and that to me is something that happened way too quick early on like bored apes and cryptopunks and some of the ones that we know now as the blue chip assets like the ones you see on rally like they had a crazy run because they were the rookie cards of of nfts i think that will still exist and i think that what people do to leverage physical with digital and tie you know ownership to an nft or two sort of an item on the blockchain is gonna get very, very interesting in the future too.
1: He, but here's a question. So it sounds like a lot of these collectibles, they need time to appreciate. NFTs or assets haven't had yet time, right? How, how
0: do you know they're gonna be valuable? I don't, is the real answer. But what I do know is that I've never seen, I don't think I've ever, I've gone through a couple of cycles at this point. I've never seen the type of excitement and the and the movement of money that I saw in NFTs through that run, you know, last year when things got crazy. When you have platforms springing up and, you know, OpenSea is, is is the one that everyone looks at now in terms of marketplace. When you see somebody printing money the way they did. Or you go back to like Top Shot from the year earlier and you look what Dapper was doing and the amount of money that they were printing every single day. It's hard to not look at that and say like, that's that's not a product anymore. It's a movement. And I think no matter what, a lot of people got burned really quickly. And that hurts but the rug pull was quick. So I think the bounce back has a chance to do the same. And I think that anytime you see it now, like even when there when there was nothing, no money being made in the space and the open sea volume and everything went down, liquidity in the marketplace wasn't the way it was obviously a year ago. But the liquidity in conversation is still there. If you go into some of the most active discords with some of those projects that were purely PFPs, if you just look on Twitter... In situations like we're having right now where, where ETH and, and Bitcoin are starting to see a little mini run where people are starting to get confidence back, all it takes is a little bit of a push. And now you see everybody's back paying attention to it again. So that like liquidity that comes, like, that comes with that attention and that conversation never really left, which makes me believe that there's still something very significant there that could change at any moment.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the company. Tell us, um, you, know, you started in 2016. It's been almost seven years uh, Scary. Tell,
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> tell, we're getting old. Yeah. So tell us about uh, you know how big the team is, and and let, let's talk a bit also about building building a company.
0: Yeah. So the team now is it's a little over forty, and that's a mix of you know everything from engineers to you know product team to uh, finance to ops. But every team is kind of lean. So every team, you know, the it's it's a little bit of a of a orchestra that we put together where there's a lot of moving parts and everything has to match everything. But in reality, everybody gets their initiatives and they're kind of with their small team knocking things out and bringing it back to the whole every time they work on something. And that's been really a successful way to do business for us internally. At the same time, you know, the growth of this business a lot of times is dictated by the market, too. So when we have opportunities to launch new verticals, new asset classes or fund models or any of the things that we're working on, a lot of it comes down to like, all right, do we have domain expertise? Um, Can we bring the right people in? Can we do this in a way that really excites our core user and our our core archetype? Cause that really hasn't changed since day one. You know, we thought about the 31, 32 year old who, you know, is a working professional, has a little bit of disposable income, understands what these things are, what these collectibles are and what they mean, understands like and sees like the auction results and sees crazy prices, but has never had a way in. And I think that was like the immediate nut that we were trying to crack. And that was like the real, the real value proposition for us. If you can get those people to think about alternative assets and collectibles the same way they think about equities, the same way they think about crypto, then you have something really meaningful here that we can grow and turn into a real business. That's always been the goal. I think that, you know, in terms of building that, when you look back now, I think, you know, not to get, not to be like, not to romanticize it or get too emotional, but early on, the, the beginning is always the best part for everybody building anything. And you've done this, you know how this is. Like the beginning is always the best part. Your first hundred users, the first time somebody spends like $1,000. I remember all that stuff like it was yesterday. The first time you get like, you know, 10,000 people to do something, or you get a bunch of, you know, you get the first news article. All these things are really, really important. I think that for anybody building a business, I didn't do this. And I talked to Chris, my co-founder about this a lot. And I, I talked to my dad about this every, every now and then. Like we didn't, nobody here, we were so focused on building this business. So, cause it was, we had so many doors closing too. And so many people said it was a dumb idea. Um, and we hadn't raised money yet. And we started getting a little bit of traction early on just through word of mouth. We've never had a real marketing team here. That stuff was so important. And we never stopped, like I never stopped to be to like nobody wants to pat themselves in the back. You never stopped to be to like be proud about what you built to this point, because that early part, you know, it never gets better than that. Like it's never better than those first, the first time you hit those milestones. And if you don't stop to celebrate it a little bit, you just perpetually move the finish line back, which I've been doing now for seven years, like you said. And you're you're always looking for the next, always looking for the next. So we're we're in this business that moves really quickly. I think that we were always like focused on getting it and not having it. And now, like we're, I'm personally still in that little little bit of a chase, trying to find the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. It's probably helped the business, but it, it, for individuals, it's never a good thing. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> so so that's a learning. But how about um you know wh- one of the topics that has been coming up lately with some founders on the podcast has been you know mistakes. You know, like what what are some of those uh, early or or not so early mistakes that that you've
0: learned from? I think that was one of them, and I think that also, you know, this is not to knock VCs. We have—I'm lucky. We have great, we have really, really good investors on our cap table, and we've always had people that like that I've always looked at as like mentors. But I think a lot of things, something that like a lot of people get wrong, and we we didn't early is that the truth of the matter is that you know investors are not your friends. Like these people are they It's it's there's a binary outcome that goes along with that too, and you gotta have their money back in three to five years. You know what I mean? Like they're not looking to hang out with you. I think that we early on got very comfortable with like the idea of that that we have time, you know what I mean, and we were trying to build, and that goes back to the conversation I had with Greg, where it's like this might be a ten-year thing, it might be a Coinbase type of thing, because you have to convince people that alternative assets are a thing, but also that you know investing on rally in those alternative assets is the right place to do it. I think that was the that was a little bit of a mis- of early on the mistake was like we should have maybe put a little more emphasis on like the marketing of this platform early word of mouth was great but it was small for a long time it started to hit its stride now so i don't have there's no regrets that go along with that but in reality like we knew exactly where we had to get to but we didn't we didn't really know how to get there early on i would have flipped that where like keeping it moving small team you know find ways to make money early on uh, spend a little more money probably on like the marketing of this and the partnerships that go along with bigger platforms probably would have got us where we are now a little bit quicker
1: yeah yeah that said i've seen cases where you know, even when the outcome is not the best, um, you know, investors and founders do actually become close friends. Right? I, I, it's I, it's, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. fine line. That's it. It's, I'm, it's, I'm,
0: I'm like contradicting myself because I have like, thank God, there are so many people on a cap table that like. I get to talk to about regular life and there are people that are really important in, in venture it's you know Roger Ehrenberg and and Howard Linsden, who's become like a mentor and somebody that I'm really close with and these people who they they care about us personally no question they care about me and Chris and Max and all of us here personally but also at the end of the day it's, it's separating that and understanding that this is also a business you can't you know, it's pr- if I'm not here tomorrow, it's probably a little bit hard to get people to answer my phone, my phone call. Like, that's 100% accurate. So, like, thinking about this in terms of a business and not getting too comfortable with slow growth, I think early on we got co- we got a little bit comfortable with growing this business slow. And then when it started to catch up and and we got that crazy accelerant from COVID, it was time to get moving. And we were good to do that. We probably could have, this goes back to what I'm saying, like moving the finish line back, because we, we did a lot of great things early on. We probably could have moved a little bit quicker early. And I think now, in this environment, you have no choice. Someone, a new founder with a small team who's focused on like, you know, being as lean as possible, making money quicker than than later, I think has the opportunity to do that. Now you have no choice because the VC is not going to just look at a pitch deck and a big idea and be like, yep, here's the money, $50 million valuation. Like, that's not, that's not going to happen ever again, I don't think, at least for the foreseeable future.
1: Yeah. And And internally... How because you started with cars, but now obviously you you you're beyond that. You do a lot of asset classes internally. How do you decide what's next? What business unit to launch next? Where is the market going? You know what, what's the internal process that goes into that?
0: Yeah, I mean we have a great team here. Again, like data backs a lot of what we do, but moving in the direction of momentum is something that goes with feel. And I think that one thing we've been really lucky with is that even with like hundreds of thousands of users. We have like you know a thousand users in our core group who are the most vocal set of users in any consumer product I've ever seen in any business that I've ever worked in or founded or been a part of. They tell us when we're wrong. They tell us when we're right. But they also tell us what direction they feel like might be right for the business. So we have this never-ending string of conversations that we have with our users and our product team is always in the conversation with new and existing users doing new interviews about features about things that we should be doing. And that goes for everything from not just like new business verticals, but new features that potentially generate revenue or create conversation or, get, or build momentum. So this year and in the, in the past year, we did a bunch of things like, you know, we started actively um, setting up voting to bring assets to auction. So if there's a group of users in an asset and one individual asset they feel like is undervalued right now and there's a chance to make money in public and selling it at auction, we let them vote on doing something like that. That came directly from user feedback. We did our first stock split, the first ever stock split of alternative asset in a Mickey Mantle rookie card uh, a few months back. That came directly from user feedback. So a lot of what we do right now, we have this never-ending whiteboard basically full of stuff. A lot of it is backed by data. Some of it is backed by intuition the kind of sprinkle of magic that happens comes from our users. When they say like, yes, this is something we feel like as a group we've gotten together and feel like we should be doing this, that turns into a feature, turns into a vertical, turns into a new asset class. And that's kind of been, been, we've been really lucky in that. We don't have to necessarily guess what users want. Like they're very active in telling us. A lot of time it matches something that we've already done 50% of the work on and then it's an easy kind of hill to climb from that point forward. Love it. Listen to your customers. It sounds so easy now, but it's like, (laughs) it's crazy because you see it now. Like the people that, our business would be hard to sort of make right now because we're starting from scratch. The, our founding group, myself included, were not known entities at that point. So now when you see, like, you know, Logan Paul launch a drink or you see, like, you know, any of these people that we looked at as influencers, like Mr. Beast, come out and just launch a, launch monster, monster projects. It comes from, like, an audience that they're already listening to. It comes from, like, a, they're, that's the difference between, like, audience and community. They have real community. They're able to sort of listen to what people want and deliver really, really easily to a super engaged group. They have the the users first who are already telling them where to go. They didn't start a business and try to figure it out. And that's what's winning right now. And that's why I like how important personality and content, all the stuff that you do, all the stuff that we see so many new creators do. Because if you have those people who are already already engaged with, they're kind of leading you in a direction that you should go. It's way easier to launch the business out of that communication, that conversation with your audience than it is to just build it and hope they show up.
1: Yeah. Speaking of which, you you've got into the podcast game, right? It's uh, true. With an, I had no choice. Yeah. <laughs> with an amazing first guest, Gary V. I've, I've been a fan for a long time since his wine days. Uh-huh. Um, tell us about the podcast. Tell us about that specific episode, but just in general.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we we lo- This is, I mean, you know this. And I think like good VCs know this now too. That content is and Alexis O'Hanian is a good example. Of this too. Oh, yeah. He's somebody who's an investor in Rally, but also was way early to it and said like there's no everything's a media company at a certain point and a lot of it comes down to like the way that you market yourself is a big part of how you market the business we were going into a bunch of new asset classes we had done it uh we were going to do something with i reached out to gary v's team um early on about taking some of the original sketches he did for his nft project and putting that on rally because the idea that like there's a there's a moment a genesis moment for everything and like the first of is always a really important part of our checklist so I reached out to his team and we had talked here and there when we, when we started the business and he was like, yeah, it's a good idea. Then I was thinking in my head like we got to do something um, to really blow this out and make sure people know about it and have the conversation with him direct. That's kind of where the podcast came from. The idea was that we wanted to do one, but I wasn't sure how willing guests would be to come on and talk about something different and talk about money. Because for us, we wanted to make sure it was about like investing in finance, but casual and community driven and that we could source questions from our users so we called it the best money I ever spent, because the idea was that like everybody has like a bad loss that they took early on. Like everybody who collects anything has gotten like fleeced on some sort of deal at some point early. And then you had people who like, but they made really some really smart bets that maybe no one knows about. And the idea was to get people on to have that conversation. So first season we did people that were either one degree of separation or friends that I had. We tried to match it up with assets that were on the platform, like the Gary Vee one, which was the first one. Then we had like Bobby hundreds. And we had like, um, rich, the founder of complex. We had, uh, some really unique people from NFT projects, from physical projects. We had, you know, um, Nathan from world builders who just tells these amazing stories about, about like uh, new media and collections. We had all, anyone who had a story to tell who had like a win and a loss based around something that they spent money on that was in the collectible space was someone that came on. We just had casual conversations about like mistakes that were made Try not to turn it into like the founder journey story, but turned it into like a little bit of that along with like the last 10, 15 minutes of every show. where about like, tell me the dumb money you spent and like the smart money you spent and what does it actually mean in your eyes. So we got just a lot of great people on to talk about exactly that. Talk about like, you know, what their wins and losses are. and And for us going forward, I think the next season of the podcast is going to be more based around video. And it's going to be one of those things where, you know. Bring the collectibles to life in person and focus more on YouTube and a little bit less on just broadcasting through streaming services. But you probably know this too, man. It got—it's just way easier to get people to talk to you when it's like, "Yo, do you want to kind of interview? Can you come on this show?" Yeah. Than it was like, "Listen, <laughs> we want to talk about doing an asset on rally that comes from your collection." So we tried to merge those two worlds. We'll do more of that next season.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's um, podcasting is a great hack, but the key—I always say this you gotta really enjoy doing it. Of course. Because if you do it just for the marketing or just because it's gonna open up opportunities, yeah. you're gonna get tired of it pretty pa- quickly. And
0: podcasting and all those things too, like if people look at Joe Rogan and the people at the top and they're like, this is a massive business. I can make so much money doing this. I think a lot of people think about it wrong. We did that on a shoestring budget. Like every episode cost us like two, 300 bucks. And, and Will, our producer, who's like our, our content lead, one of our content leads here, is somebody that like took it seriously, he loved doing it too. And I love having these conversations. You know me, like, I could just if you let me talk, I'm gonna absolutely talk as long as possible. <laughs> Peeling myself out of that and letting other people talk was a little bit tough with the podcast, but that said, I think it's something that if you take it seriously, it'll pay itself off. And that's this is a Howard Linson thing, too. He's always told me this, he said this early on. It's like, you know, every party, you know, is great, it's all they're all the same, but they all end the same, too. I think podcasting is one of those things, it's getting it's becoming a very crowded market if you have a niche and you have like relationships that you can build on, then there's something really interesting there that you can do and get your thoughts out without having to force them in front of people. And doing it now is the right time to do it before that party gets too, too crowded, you know? Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and also, you know, from my point of view, there's the competitive juices that start flowing. But at the same time, I'm like, I can't let that overtake me because then you're going to be frustrated that you're not number yeah, one. Yeah, number one, exactly. Right? <laughs> it's, like, I mean, it's like a
0: Spotify rap and it's like, I'm not in the top 10%. I'm not this. And you start like getting really pissed at yourself. Sometimes yeah. that's good fuel
1: though too. Who knows? <laughs> uh, good, good stuff, Rob. So uh, to end this on on like a note about the future, um, tell us about the most exciting project coming up for, for Raleigh and, and, you know, what, what – uh, what are you most optimistic about going forward?
0: I mean, I'm optimistic about like, I think small communities are going to win. I think um, I'll give you an example, like Josh, Josh Elman, who's a, a great product thinker and someone that I've talked to a bunch from from Robin Hood and from other, a bunch of other spaces. He put this, I think he tweeted this recently. He was talking about uh, what he feels like the future looks like. And he had this term I would never heard before, where it's private social togetherness was what he described it as. And it's this idea that there are small groups of five, six hundred, a thousand people. I think that really, really matter. If you put a product in front of them, that's meaningful. Even at a high price point, you have somebody who's going to sort of start to spend and spread that word for you. And I think that we've always looked at what we do as reach the most people, let them come into rally and figure out what they want. What we're finding is that the niche groups are as important, if not more important than the whole group. So if you have 300 people who are really into something and they're going to be your marketing team and they're going to be the ones that spend. That's almost more important than 100,000 people who are just audience. And I think that we've started to think about each individual asset vertical, whether it's dinosaur fossils or NFTs or, you know, baseball cards as their own space here on Rally that all kind of come together in the museum downstairs and really in those spaces we can bring people together. And if you only care about, you know, dinosaur fossils and you come here with your kid and you see it and you leave with an investment in that, that's great. Because then, you know, you're going to tell everyone about that. If Rally for you is about dinosaurs, then we're a dinosaur app. That's it. And if you can find other stuff in the app, I think we're going to lead you in that direction. That's always done well for us. But I really do think that, like, the small groups are going to win going forward. The lean groups who really care, super engaged. Your big number, user number doesn't matter as much. For us, I'm excited about focusing on a bunch of those, what would have been looked at as niche groups, you know, two years ago. Which now are a whole groups of people who can tell us what they want, where they want to go, and they'll spend money to be a part of it, I think.
1: So you, you want to have a lot of those a thousand true fans. I think in we, each category. Yeah, I
0: think fandom is becoming so much more important. And uh, you know, those people are your it's the equivalent of like the old school, like, you know, your Reddit moderators, the people who they work for free because they get something great out of what you built. And I've been I've been I've gotten away from this early on, like I said, talking to every user and they're We've talked about this before. So many, so many people on Rally have, like, my cell phone and my personal email. And, like, they'll catch up on weekends and try to just check in. And, like, I'll do that on Instagram, on Twitter, wherever else. But, like, I got a, not that I got away from it, but we got busy. Like, we got super busy during COVID. And right now, everybody's kind of rethinking their relationships. And I think I'm doing the same thing. I'm trying to get back to that. Everyone's trying to get back to basics. That, for me, is the most exciting part is that we have the opportunity to do that now. Is a down market. You have the ability to really educate people, build more content, get those small groups to really care and become your sounding board. And that's what we're going to focus on here. That's what I'm focusing on personally too. Amazing. Good stuff, Rob. Thank Thank you. Thank you always, man. Thanks for tuning in.
1: And I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Rob Petrozzo, co-founder of Rally. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.